Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. My guest today has wide and deep experience in healthcare. She is thoughtful and has an interesting perspective on women physicians. Join me for this important discussion next on Sound Practice. Deborah Schlein is a board-certified family practitioner. She's also an award-winning author. Dr. Schlein is author of Lessons Learned, Stories from Women Physician Leaders, which is published by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Deborah Schlein, welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you very much. I'm nice to be here. Well, it's our absolute pleasure to have you. We're going to be discussing your book, but before we we get into that, I'm interested in, in your career. Could you please describe your path as a physician leader? Well, I started out, as you said, as a family physician. I uh, moved from Baltimore to Los Angeles to finish my training, and I actually became a partner at Kaiser Permanente in Southern California. My husband and I practiced there together for about 10 years, and then I was recruited to uh, UCLA to become the medical director for student health service. There are 33,000 students at UCLA. And so that was my first really administrative role, although I had been on committees at Kaiser, but really hadn't had any administrative responsibility. And my boss said that I should um, take a, uh, a business course. So he ended up sending me to the MBA program at UCLA. I dragged my husband there as well. We did the course together and we finished our MBAs uh, in 1988, class of 88. So after I practiced at UCLA for 10 years, I was as medical director, um, I started to get calls for uh all kinds of, of roles as leaders in various, uh, mostly managed care in Los Angeles, in California. And I thought, you know, I wasn't right for a particular role. I wasn't interested, but I knew exactly who would be perfect for the job. And so my husband said, here, you went and got an MBA. Why don't we start our own business? So we started our own healthcare consulting and recruiting company, which en- ended up becoming a national company. And as a result of that, um, I did that until I moved to Florida. Actually, I did, did some searches while I was in Florida, but um, probably helped to to uh, put a lot of very uh, mid-management uh, people into senior roles in, in across the country. So I'm pretty proud of that. Well, you should be. That, uh, that must feel good, be able yeah. to help so many people. Let's shift gears and talk about lessons learned, stories from women physician leaders. How did you come to write the book? Okay. If you give me a few minutes, I'm going to give you a little bit of an explanation of how this all started because this is really the third iteration of a project that I literally started three decades ago. Um, 10 years ago, the American College of Physician Executives, which is now the American Association for Physician Leadership, or AAPL, they asked me to update a monograph that I'd written in 1995, which was titled Women in Medicine and Management, a Mentoring Guide. Now, at that time, in 1995, I was only one of a few women in the college. There were only about 19% of physicians in the United States who were uh, a female. And so, as you can imagine, I found it quite difficult to find more than a few women physicians who held low or even mid-management roles and almost none in top management. And that was true across the healthcare system. Well, as you said, I write fiction as well as nonfiction. And I found that over the years, the narrative form is a pretty powerful way to engage people. Um, People tend to remember stories more than they remember data. So after months of searching, I finally selected about 17 representative women physicians And what I did is I, after interviewing them, I said, I want you to write your own personal stories. I want you to include 
<clears throat> how you chose medicine, why and how you transitioned from clinical medicine to management, and what were the obstacles that you encountered along the way? <clears throat> now, many of these original women were primary care doctors. They were in middle management, or they were just beginning to transition from clinical medicine to leadership. And it was clear from their narratives that for most of them, their leadership positions had been unplanned, just like mine, and that few of them had found role models or mentors to help guide their career paths. And there was a consensus that there was a thick glass ceiling that existed within healthcare that was thwarting their ability to move into more senior roles. So when I agreed to update the original monograph, which was 17 years later, I thought the situation would be much improved. After all, women were now entering medical uh, schools in increasing numbers since 1995. I think in 2012 or 2013, there were something like 50% or more of the students enrolled in many medical schools, including my alma mater, were female. And women were now 30% of practicing physicians in the United States. Unfortunately, as I researched uh, the original monograph, 17 years later, I, I, uh, I found that the situation had really not improved. Uh, women were still underrepresented and underutilized in positions of power, especially at the most senior levels. At that time, there were no more than 16% of the top leadership positions in any area in the healthcare system that were held by women doctors. So for that updated book, I repeated the same format I'd used in the original monograph. And at that time, I was able to find 24 exceptional female physicians who had defied the odds. They'd actually risen to top management posts. And that title was Lessons Learned, Stories from Women in Medical Management. And in that book, um, these women shared their career paths, not only from clinical medicine to leadership within healthcare, including the obstacles and the challenges they faced, but I wanted them to talk about how they balanced work and personal life because the hope was that their experiences would serve as a guide for younger women physicians that were aspiring to executive roles within medicine. And then in 2021, which is now 26 years later after the original monograph and a decade after the first update, I got a call from uh, now the AAPL and they asked me to do yet another update that included as many of the original women as possible because people were asking, well, where are they now? Have they really made it? You know, have we made it? So the latest version, which we wanna talk about today, updates the stories of 23 of the original 20, the original women in the 2013 version. Um, I added nine additional women, including two young women. One is a, uh, was a senior medical student and just moving into residency. And one was a second year resident who's now a chief resident. Both of these young women had had leadership training in medical school, very different from my experience. And they aspired to leadership roles in the future. So we wanted to know their perspective and then I also had people share some of the unique challenges that COVID had, uh, had created for them. So the women in this book have found um, success in many different areas in medical management. They include corporate medical directors, managed care executives, managers within government, pharmaceutical industry, academic leaders, hospital executives, and even entrepreneurs. And in this version, again, I followed the same format because everybody seems to like they're telling their stories, although I was um, the editor, you know, I had some of them I did rewrite, but with their permission. And then I wrote a, an overview chapter in which I researched the current um, situation vis-a-vis -vis women physicians and leadership across the healthcare system. Bottom line, almost three decades since the original monograph, women physicians continue to represent a relatively small group of senior physician leaders. And that's the goal of this book is to provide um, role models and mentors for women who are considering not just medicine, but looking to become leaders. As you think about the chapter that you wrote as, as an overview, were you surprised by the stats that you found so many years later? 
Yeah, I really was because I would have thought, you know, as we move, you know, as I talk about more women in the quote pipeline, that things would be better in terms of moving into leadership. So I was surprised. And some of those reasons um, have to do with kind of institutional things. We still look at, at what makes a good leader and tend to see those as more male attributes for whatever reason. But there were also some reasons that the women themselves gave, which I was quite surprised. One of them, of course, was lack of mentors, and that still is an issue. One of them was lack of confidence. There's a real confidence gap still among women who are extremely accomplished. You know, as I said, I've done recruiting. And one of the things I found is that when I send a um, job description to a woman candidate who I vetted, I know that she's perfect for a role. I know the company, she'd be a perfect fit for that organization. I literally count the seconds until she tells me she doesn't have this skill or that skill that's right for that job, that she's not quite sure that this is for her. Whereas I hate to say it, but I send it to a male candidate who maybe not quite as qualified, or I feel you know isn't maybe has lacks some of the you know the things that are on the job description. No question about I'm perfect for the job, and you know I can do it. So that that confidence gap was a surprise even for women today. Some people call it an imposter syndrome, and a number of the women even use that term. And then um, of course the other reason has to do with balancing work and and family, um, which is still an issue today, and has a lot to do with how organizations are not providing some of those options. I'm interested on the imposter syndrome or, or perceived lack of, of confidence. Is that something that should be addressed at the medical school during the education process? Or, or where, where do you think that it's best to attack that problem? I agree. I think it should be at the medical school. Of course, it should be earlier because, as, you know, as women move into uh, women, I'm doing a book on STEM now, so you know I'm hearing that women are hearing, girls are hearing in, in early uh, K through 12 that maybe they're not good enough in math and science, and so they start to lose confidence in those skills. And of course, you know everybody who is a physician, for the most part, has majored in some sort of STEM field, whether it's chemistry or, or math or science. So yeah, I think it should start. I think it should start very early, but I think certainly the medical school should be addressing that because it seems to be a, a really, uh, you know, an issue that affects a lot of women. Do you think that there's been a general mistake in just thinking of numbers of female physicians solve the problem of not enough females in leadership positions? Yes, I do. You know, and so uh, the two two young women that uh, that we added to the book who are in you know coming right out of medical school and residency, they are taking leadership programs within their FIU, as a matter of fact, is Florida International University, and there are some medical schools. My med school is adding a leadership program. So I think that's great because I think they're giving them the sense that, you know, I believe you should be a clinical clinician first before you decide you want to be um, head of a healthcare company. But I think that um, if you learn leadership skills early, then, you know, you, and you have that in your mind about, you know, becoming a leader. So, yes. Why don't you tell us about several of the women that appear in, in your book, Lessons Learned? Okay, I'm just going to pick three because you know they're all very right. outstanding. One of them was Mona Hanatisha. She's um, uh, her family came from Iraq. She was born in England, and they moved to Detroit, where her father was an engineer for uh, General Motors. Uh, Mona is a board-certified pediatrician with a master's in public health, and I would guess that most people have heard of her because she's best known as the whistleblower who exposed the dangerous blood levels in Flint, Michigan's children after the. Uh, the water was switched from the Detroit River to the Flint River. She literally risked her job to raise awareness of this scandal. 
And um, I wanted to promote her, especially because I think it's important for physicians to understand that we need to do what's right when there are things that, you know, we hear when she was being, she was getting pushback even from her, her organization that she should not say anything. Um, she just didn't listen because she was, she wanted to do right by her patients. Um, and she ended up becoming the uh, Time Magazine's uh, most influential people in 2016. So she's terrific. Um, then the um, Elizabeth Garner, I know she's done a podcast, I think, for you guys. But um, Elizabeth holds a medical degree from Harvard. Uh, she's practiced OBGYN in, in gynecological oncology and internal medicine at, at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Mass General. She holds a master's degree in public health from Harvard. But... Um, and she's also the current president of the AMWA, the American Medical Women's Association. And she's been a leader in the pharmaceutical industry. But I think um, what really makes her success so fantastic is her backstory, which I hope, I haven't listened to her podcast yet, so I hope she talked about that. But, you know, she was a war refugee. In Lessons Learned, she shares her life journey. And let me just, I, I wanted to quote her because I thought what she wrote was so terrific. Quote, my identity as a physician who works toward leading change comes directly from the foundation of my formative years. My mother is a white American born in Huntington, Long Island. As a fresh graduate of Mount Holyoke College, she started immediately on her way to life as a, a change maker by joining the Peace Corps. She was dispatched to teach German in Nigeria, a fledgling company that had just won independence from Great Britain two years earlier. My father was born in rural eastern Nigeria to proud Igbo parents and worked his way to a degree in electrical engineering and economics from Leeds University in England, unquote. So she was literally born a crime because in 1964, interracial marriage was illegal. And as a result, she spent her young years in Nigeria living in a remote Igbo village while a civil war was raging. And eventually, her mother and her older brother escaped to Portugal, where her maternal grandparents were living, and then to Cincinnati, Ohio, where her aunt was living. And her father remained in Biafra because he was overseeing the electrical grid and the airports. But as a single white woman with two mixed race children, her mother had trouble finding a landlord who would rent her apartment in 1970. So they ended up returning to Nigeria to reconnect with her father. And that's where she spent some of her early years. Um, and here's this woman who is an unbelievable success now in the United States and offering so much to women, particularly women, women's health. And then, um, I'll just tell you one more, and that's Laura Esserman. She's a world-renowned breast cancer surgeon. She is an advocate for changing how women are screened for breast cancer. She was also named Time Magazine's 100 Most uh, Influential Women in the World in 2016. And, um, you know, she's got great credentials, went to Harvard and Stanford. But um, what I think makes her so amazing, besides the fact that she's known as the singing surgeon because she sings to her patients <laughs> as they go under anesthesia, she is director of the Carol Frank Buck Breast Cancer Center in UC San Francisco. And she has been, um, she really believes that patients with a certain type of breast cancer, ductal carcinoma in situ, should be placed on active surveillance instead of undergoing mastectomy or lumpectomy, radiation and endocrine therapy. So she's been a real proponent of the idea that breast cancer screening sometimes brings overdiagnosis and overtreatment. And to that end, she is conducting a wisdom study. It's W-I-S-D-O-M. Don't ask me what the letters stand for. But her goal is to bring together 100,000 women from across the United States to find the safest and most effective way to detect breast cancer for every woman. Um, right now, she's got 75,000 women enrolled. And they have to be from the age of 40 to 74, not having had breast cancer. So anyone who hears this podcast who knows someone that might be interested, if they contact me, I'll get them in touch with Dr. Esserman. But she, again, is, is, is just a wonderful leader 
and again has had to buck the system, which is which is what's so interesting about some of these women leaders. Well, you certainly gave us three tremendous, um, three tremendous positions, and it strikes me that not only are they superior clinicians, but they're but they're much more. They truly are are all leaders. Um, so, how did you go about? You mentioned that you have more than twenty um, physician female physician leaders in your book. How did you go about identifying these these women? Well, because I've done recruiting over the years, I've gotten to know a lot of, my style is to get to know a lot of people over the years and kind of be a mentor to them. I, it wasn't just, you know, making a placement. My goal was really to put more women in leadership roles, although I certainly placed plenty of, of men. But um, so I knew some of them. And as and as I spoke to some of them, and, you know, they were all very interested in being in the book, I, you know, I would, there would be some some other names that they might have given me. And I went, I wanted to have a very diverse group for this book. I wanted them to be, I want to, and if you looked at the cover of the book, it has the pictures of everybody because I, I want people to identify immediately with hopefully somebody that looks like them. You know, there's a quote that I, I keep quoting, which is Mary uh, Wright Edelman, who was a, a, a civil rights activist. And she said, you can't be what you can't see. And so it's really mm -hmm. been shown that if young women can see somebody that looks like them, they're more interested in their story. And they say, well, maybe I can do it too. So basically, that's what I did, which was try to identify uh, different, you know, people in different fields. These are not all primary care doctors. Many of them are in surgical specialties, like breast cancer surgery, uh, heart surgeon, um, uh, Dr. Magliato. So that, um, you know, so that there's a variety of, of disciplines, variety of ethnicities, variety of geography, a variety of, of uh, workplaces, government, as I said, government, academia, and so on. So you mentioned that you are working on another another book at the at the present time. Are you finding that the issues that women face in medicine are also faced by women in the STEM fields? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, it's almost worse for women in STEM, which I didn't expect. Um, Tell me about that. That's interesting. <laughs> well, there, you know, there are more women getting PhDs today than men. I didn't know that. But yet there are very few women uh, per percentage-wise that are going into certain STEM fields, more in biology, but not very many in technology, engineering, and math. And so as I interviewed these women, I found that they were not only experiencing many of the same issues that the women physicians had experienced, but because most of them go into academia, academia is a particularly difficult place for a lot of women who want to have who want to have it all. They want to have families because it, when they start to have children, which is in their mid careers, that's the time when they're supposed to be publishing more and doing you know more research and so on. And so if they take time off, oftentimes they're you know they're given uh, they're not they're not able to move ahead as quickly. So that's that was an interesting. That was an interesting issue that I found for, you know, that I didn't see so much with the moon and physicians. But a lot of the same issues in terms of, you know, not having confidence, um, not having enough role models and mentors, same. Do you feel that some of these issues uh, play into uh, women in the uh, selection for residency programs? I I do, although I'm hoping that's changing as as are more when you're talking about physicians, more women in, in medicine are are going are choosing fields that are um, more surgical, for example, 
or more the subspecialties that my group was told, you know, don't even consider them. We, we all went into primary care. My group went into primary care and pediat you know, pediatrics, internal medicine. A few went into OBGYN. But other than that, we were really discouraged from these other fields. Now that there are more women in some of these specialties, like, like Dr. Macliato, who really takes the time to really try to draw more women into a heart surgery, for example, or Dr. Esterman, who tries to find more women who are interested in, in uh, to mentor more women in, in surgical specialties, that I think that's, that is changing. And that's a good thing. If you could wave a wand, doctor, and change something, <laughs> what would you change that would be most beneficial to women in the practice of medicine? I think that I would probably, in the medical schools, I would start immediately uh, assigning mentors, immediately, and really tracking those people over time, which is something that I've tried to do, when, as I say, when I've done recruiting, is to really watch people's careers over time and give them some ideas about things that they can do because they haven't thought about it before. So uh, that's the only thing, that's the first thing that I would change. And then, of course, I've spent years trying to get my organization at UCLA even to think about daycare centers in our hospital, because I hired a lot of women who, who in student health who had children, and they were often the people who got called when their children were sick and they had to take time off, which was an issue just in terms of, of scheduling. I understood that, and I certainly appreciated that. I tried to argue with the, with the chancellor that if we had daycare, you know, that would uh, you know, have alleviated some of those issues. So I think it's more organization. I think it's more true of non-academic organizations today that, that they do provide some of that, you know, in, uh, but hopefully we'll see that more in medical schools. We're just coming off of a pandemic. Do you believe that COVID impacted female physicians in a different way than it did their male colleagues? Yeah. Well, the reason it probably did is because women are still tend to be more the caretakers than the guys. And so suddenly their children were in lockdown and they had to uh, homeschool them, uh, or they had to at least, you know, observe how they were doing on the computer. Um, they may have had to teach their, their, their courses if they were teaching medical students online. A lot of the students, most medical schools were locked down as well. And then they became uh, caretakers for their parents. So they really had, you know, more responsibility than, than normal. The positive part of that was as the, their husbands, some of them ended up taking on more home responsibilities too, which was kind of a good thing. So, so you know, that was a positive part of, of COVID. But yeah, I think, I think the women really felt that they had, they had to do twice as much in order to get the job done. Is our time together uh, come, comes to an end? I'm, Really interested in what the future holds for you. What uh, what are you what are you planning on on working on, or what do you what's the next project? Well, I just finished this book on women in STEM, and I have uh, twenty nine women in that book who, uh, you know, as I said, are um, unbelievable leaders. Some of them, first woman head of the National Science Foundation, first woman head of the uh, National Academy of Sciences. Those kind of leadership roles that, that they have, their stories are amazing. So I'm working now to try to help promote that book. And in fact, tomorrow I'm doing a radio show about it. Um, and then I, I have a, uh, a co-author for a series that I've written uh, that's a thriller about a, a, a young woman who's a radio talk show host who solves murder mysteries. And she wants me to, we've done three books with, with her as the main character. So my friend wants me to write a couple more. So we'll see. 
Very interesting. <laughs> well, my guest has been Dr. Deborah Schlein. Doctor, Schlein. thank you so much for your time and being on Sound Practice. Thank you very much. My thanks to Deborah Schlein for her time and insights. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Had his holy cow, that man Robin went to Kapow.